51 years ago this month. In fact, 51 years ago last Sunday. A very dramatic event took place in outer space. Most of you know about it from the movie Apollo 13. Apollo 13 lifted off at Kennedy Space Center on Saturday, April 11, 1970 at 2.13 p.m. for what was to be the third human landing on the moon. A few anomalies in the moments leading up to the launch, uh, but nothing too severe, they thought. Even five minutes after the launch, the main engine cut out two minutes early, but the other engines ran a little extra time and appeared to make up the difference. And by all accounts, it was a very smooth operation. In fact, it was considered at the moment to be the smoothest mission to date. Things were looking so good that 46 hours and 43 minutes into the flight, the Capcom, the capsule communicator, Joe Kerwin, said to the crew of Apollo 13, quote, the spacecraft is in real good shape as far as we're concerned. We're bored to tears down here, end quote. They wouldn't be bored for long. But neither Joe Kerwin nor the crew of Apollo 13 could know that was in less than 10 hours from that moment, the number two oxygen tank would explode, causing all kinds of damage, and they were 200,000 miles from Earth. You, most of you already know the, how the story ends, that they eventually did make it back to Earth. They slingshotted around the moon and made it safely back to Earth. There's a lot of other issues that took place in the capsule that weren't in the movie. For instance, uh, uh, Jim Lovell lost 14 pounds in there because of their inability to eat and drink enough while they were uh, making their trip back. It was determined that there was an electrical problem inside one of the oxygen canisters that sparked it and caused an explosion. Well, everything looked good on the outside, and the spacecraft functioned well for a while, and from the outsider perspective, it was going better than any other mission ever. There was a flaw inside that almost became fatal. If they hadn't been able to figure out a way to get them back to Earth, all those, those three astronauts would have died in space. In our text in Revelation chapter 2, we're told about a church that looked really good on the outside. From an outsider perspective, and even from an insider perspective, it looked pretty good, and it was functioning well, but inside there was a fatal flaw. And if they didn't fix that flaw... The church was literally going to die. It was going to disappear. God himself was going to snuff out the church and its existence. As we walk through our text in Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, we're going to see a striving people, a serious problem, and a simple plan. And it will all reveal that love for God and for his people are necessary to the survival of the church. A love for God and for his people are necessary to the survival of the church. We start with the striving people. Follow along as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance 
and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is a a busy church. This is a church in Asia Minor. It's one of seven churches that John is going to address the letter of Revelation to. Ephesus was a strong church that was on the the west coast of Lydia, or Asia Minor there, what's modern-day Turkey now. It was a letter sent from Jesus Christ. John wrote it, but Jesus dictated these parts. He's the one who is identified as the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, the walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know from chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands are representative of the churches, the seven churches that he's writing to. And the seven angels, or the seven stars, are those who are the leaders of those churches. And Jesus is is saying, I'm holding these in my hand, and he's walking among the lampstands. In other words, he's tending to them and, and seeing what each one is doing. He's recognizing the truth of each of these lampstands. The church had a great beginning in an early history. The gospel was brought to Ephesus by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He brought with him a dynamic duo from Corinth, the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla. They would accompany Paul to the point of Ephesus, and he would actually leave them in Ephesus where they would make disciples, and then he would eventually come back. The church was established as Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. At that time, he ran into some disciples of John the Baptist who had not yet been baptized into Christ. So Paul explained a little bit more. They got baptized and they, along with Aquila and Priscilla and whoever else they had led to Christ, had formed the nucleus, the the birth of this church. Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. That's longer than any other city he ever stayed in as a missionary. He never stayed anywhere longer than two years that we know of, and he stayed three years in Ephesus. While he was there, God used him dramatically. He powerfully preached Christ and performed many miracles, according to Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. It says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. It's took Paul's handkerchief and brought it to people, and that was enough. It's pretty amazing. The Holy Spirit was moving among the population in a most dramatic way. Ephesus was dominated by idol worship, and uh, Artemis, the the goddess Athena, was their primary uh, deity there. They had a bank to Athena. Athena was on their currency, and many people practiced idolatry and witchcraft and, uh, and uh, magic spells and things like that. But here's what happened there, Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. To give you a perspective, 50,000 pieces of silver was equivalent to 
138 years wages for the average person. It's a significant amount of money. So people were turning to Christ in great numbers. In fact, so many people were coming to Christ that the idol workers or idol makers union got together and they were panicked that if we don't put a stop to Paul and we don't put a stop to the church at Ephesus, we will all be out of work before long. The church had some of the best preachers in the world at that time. As we mentioned, the Apostle Paul was the founder and the lead pastor for the first three years of its existence. After Paul was Timothy, Paul's protege, he would pastor the church at Ephesus. He would be the pastor during the end of Paul's life. Apollos came in there at some point in time, and Apollos was known as a dynamic, powerful, fervent preacher. He needed a little more theological training, which he got from Aquila and Priscilla, and that just sparked him to preach even harder. And then after that, according to strong tradition, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, would pastor the church at Ephesus after being released from captivity on Patmos. I want you to understand what that's like for that period of time. That would be like having John Calvin be the founding pastor of your church, When he retires, he turns it over to to Jonathan Edwards. When Jonathan Edwards leaves, he turns it over to D.L. Moody. And when D.L. Moody leaves, he turns it over to Charles Spurgeon. That's the kind of pedigree this church had. There's more scripture written to Ephesus than any other church. The book of Ephesians, obviously. 1st and 2nd Timothy was written to Timothy while he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, according to strong tradition, was addressed to the people at Ephesus. And then Revelation obviously went to the church at Ephesus along with six others. And it is believed that the Gospel of John was written by John while he was in Ephesus, so they would have been the first recipients of the Gospel of John. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul while he was in Ephesus. The church had an amazing background, an amazing pedigree. If there had been a competition for churches that looked good and performed well, they would have won best in show. They were a a strong church. Jesus is saying, I'm walking around in the churches, and I know everything that's going on here in this church. He's aware of every strength and every weakness of every church. He knows how the church represents him within the world. He's intimately aware of the hearts of the people who make up the church. He has the authority over the church to command it and to condemn it. Rather than going door to door and asking people what they want the church to be, we just need to search the scripture and find out what Christ wants the church to be. We have seen over the last 15 Sundays God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for others. We have seen over the last 15 Sundays that God expects us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love for God and for others is the identifying mark of a true church. If there is no love for others or love for God, then it is not a gospel church. 
Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As Jesus is attending to his churches and he's looking at the church at Ephesus, he is looking for that identifying mark. He is trying to see, is this a true church? As he looks at the church at Ephesus, he lists nine strengths of the church. First, he says, I know your deeds. It's a busy church. They had a lot going on. They had a full calendar. They had to use really tiny font to get everything in. Then as your elders got older, they couldn't see it. They, had <laughs> they were redeeming the time. They were busy doing ministry. Conferences, activities, discipleship, outreach, whatever. They were busy church. They were working hard. If you moved to Ephesus and you were looking for a church where there was a lot going on and a lot of things to be involved in, Ephesus would have been the church. They were doing good things. They were doing ministry things. He says, I know your toil. It's a hard-working church. Not just a busy church, but a hard-working church. They weren't afraid of labor. They had a broom in one hand and a Bible in the other. This was such a hard-working church that their choir robes had sweat stains. They would work to the point of exhaustion. He goes on, I know your perseverance. They were a determined church. They didn't give up. Opposition, difficulties did not stop them. They just kept working, and they kept working hard. It was a pure church. He said, you cannot tolerate evil men. They didn't turn a blind eye to those in their congregation who were living in open, unconfessed sin and those who were influencing others in that sin. They didn't, they didn't overlook it. They didn't sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't exist. They dealt with the sin. They practiced church discipline, making sure, trying to keep the unity of the body, trying to bring people to repentance and trying to keep the church pure. They were a discerning church. He says, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. They confronted false teaching and exposed false teachers. When an evangelist came into town, they gave him a theology test and and they would post the scores on Facebook. (laughs) They didn't put up with nonsense. Somebody came in and tried to preach a gospel other than the gospel that they had already heard. They rejected it. It's not true. It's a false prophet. It's a false teacher. And he says again, you have perseverance. Here it's in connection with the false teaching and the the theology. So this was a committed church. They were committed to preserving strong theology. They understood the importance of right teaching. They not only persevered in labor, as we saw earlier, they persevered in keeping their theology strong. And then he says, and you have endured for my name's sake. This is a long-suffering church. They endured persecution from those outside the church, particularly those who worshipped the idols. And they thought it was interfering with their, their whole society, that this church was going to 
uproot their entire society. It was going to diminish their goddess Athena, and they would persecute the people in the church. They wanted to advance the name of Christ, and they would do it under severe struggles. Then he says, and you have not grown weary. This is a tireless church. There is no sign of them running out of steam or slowing down. They used Red Bull in their communion cups. They wanted to keep going. And if you, we can add to that verse 6, drop down to verse 6. This is more commendation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is a passionate church. A passionate church. The uh, Nicholas, the people who are following the teaching of Nicholas, the Nicolaitans, Nicholas promoted a very loose view of Christian liberty, and his view was basically that we are not under law but under grace, and because we're under grace, we can do really whatever we want. He was speaking primarily of the physical, that you can do whatever you want physically because you're under grace. You're not under the law. Uh, So if you want to practice immorality, go ahead and do so. That's okay. It's no big deal. So he perverted the scriptures, but the Ephesian Christians weren't falling for it. They weren't, they weren't dealing with that. They would cast him out as a false teacher. So Ephesus was a busy, hardworking, determined, pure, discerning, committed, long-suffering, tireless, and passionate church that did not quit. From the outside, and perhaps from the inside, it looked great. If you were looking for a church and you walked into the church at Ephesus, you would have thought you found the perfect church. You would have said, this is the church we've been looking for all of our lives. But it was far from a perfect church. There was a serious problem. There was a problem in the church that was so significant that if not dealt with, it would kill the church. Despite all of the advance, uh, the, the uh, excellent things that were going for it, If this church didn't deal with this one problem, it would kill it. The problem had been carefully hidden behind their busy calendar and camouflaged by their theological aptitude. The serious problem is found in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Something happened. Something in this church, somewhere in its history, somewhere along the line, the people stopped doing what they were doing out of a heart of love. They were doing it out of habit. They were doing it out of tradition. They were doing it out of guilt. They were doing it out of of pride. They were doing it for whatever motive other than love. I want you to notice Jesus says to them, you've left, not lost. Your first love. You didn't misplace it. You left it. The word literally means they abandoned their first love. It is actually the same word used in 1 Corinthians 7 for divorce. You divorced your first love. You walked out on your first love. Their first love had not been misplaced. It didn't just fade into the background. It was right where they left it at the foot of the cross. 
This is first love, not first chronologically. This is first in terms of preeminence, the most important love. You've left the most important thing. You left the chief love, the primary love. It was the loving of God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It was the loving your neighbor as yourself. It was the love that superseded all other loves. It was the love that Jesus talked about when he said, unless you love me more than you love mother and father and brother and sister and child, you cannot be my disciple. It's that preeminent love. It's that love that God is to have the preeminence in all things. In every area of your life, Christ is to be number one. They were still busy. They were still hardworking. They were still preaching. They were still practicing correct theology. But their motives were all wrong. They were busy for appearance sake rather than for Christ's sake. They were so busy that they didn't take time to see what was truly ruling their hearts. They serve more out of practical purpose than passionate pursuit. The fire for their love for God and love for others had not been tended to. And as a result, it had grown cold and in danger of completely going out. Their fire once burned like a bonfire. Now it's just glowing embers. At once upon a time, the fire in that church was so vibrant that it ignited an entire city to repentance. Now you can barely roast a marshmallow over it. They left their first love for God and their love for others and their love for the lost. But there's a plan. It's a simple plan. Jesus graciously offers this church a chance to return, to survive. It's a three-step process. A three-step process to reigniting their love for God and love for others. Three commands that must be followed if their love is going to grow, if the fire is going to ignite, if the church is going to survive. Verse 5, Jesus says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The three steps, repent, remember, repent, and return. Remember. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. This is a present active imperative. It means it's a, it's a present active command. It means it's ongoing. It's a constant command. It's a constant remembering. It's not just think back one time and remember what you used to be in your, what your walk with Christ used to be. It's a constant reminding yourself of what that walk is like. Remember from where you have fallen. Search the archives of your memory for the love that you once had for God and the love that you once had for others and the love that you once had for the lost. Think back on what it was like. 
And by the way, if when you think back, you can't remember loving God and loving others and loving the lost, and maybe you're not saved. So Jesus says, think back from where you've fallen, from this love that you used to have. Remember when you came to saving faith and you're willing to do anything. But that servant's heart's become a selective heart. I will choose what I'll do. I can remember the time getting on my knees as a teenager saying, God, I will go wherever you want me to go and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I hope I never lose that. And I hope he wants me to go to the Bahamas. Do you remember when you're willing to do anything? Are you still there? Still willing to do whatever God wants you to do, whatever it is? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's cleaning the bathrooms, taking out the trash, or teaching a class. Remember. Remember when you only wanted to follow Christ? Now you live like Christ follows you? Remember when you would say, God, show me where you want me to go. Instead of, God, here's where I'm going. I hope you make it work out. Remember when you wanted to tell everybody about Jesus? Now you're careful what you say about Jesus in front of other people. because You don't want to offend them. Remember when you promised God that you would do whatever he asked you to do and give up whatever he asked you to give up. Now you make plans without ever consulting God at all. Remember when you basked in the newness of God's love? Just amazed that God would love you enough to send his son to die for you. Now you question his love every time something doesn't go the way you think it should go. That's what Paul, or that's what uh, Jesus rather is saying to this church at Ephesus. Remember. Remember from where you fell. Remember the heights of your love for me. Remember when you would do anything. Remember when I was number one in your life. Remember when you followed me, not me following you. Remember. Remember your love for God and your love for others is necessary for the church to survive. The second step, repent. Verse 5, therefore remember from where you are fallen and repent. Turn around. That's literally what it means. Turn around. Do an about face. Stop going the direction you're going and turn around and go back the other direction. Like lost on a hike and think, well, you know, if we just keep going, we're bound to find safety. No, stop and turn around and go back the way you came. Stop following your present path. Turn around. Turn away from loveless labor. Just doing things 
without a motive for, of love, without doing it out of a love for God and love for others. Turn away from surface sacrifices. It's not really in your heart. It's not really out of desire to serve God, to honor him. It's just for show. Turn away from thinking that God overlooks your motives. That God just cares about the results and he doesn't care about your heart. Turn away from comparing your service to those who do far less. You know, when Christians want to feel good about their service, they just compare themselves to somebody that's not doing anything. They say, I'm doing a lot. Look, it's pretty good. You want to compare yourself to something, compare yourself to the pages of Scripture. Compare yourself to what Jesus wants for you and from you. Turn away from talking the talk without walking the walk. Turn away from claiming to love one another while you disparage your brother or sister behind their back. You sing songs about loving God and loving one another and you say that in a crowd, but when you're with your friends or your compadres, you rip one another apart. Turn away from carrying gossip about your brother and sister while you refuse to help bear their own burdens. We are called to bear one another's burdens, not talk about one another's burdens. We're not called to pass judgment on one another's burdens. We're called to bear them. We're called to help them. Even when their burden is a result of their sin. Turn away from choosing sides against a brother or a sister. Turn away from withholding compassion from those with whom you disagree. We don't always agree. And sometimes we passionately disagree, but that should never stop us from having compassion for one another. Nor should we require agreement in order to show compassion. Turn away from the pride that causes you to believe that your brother or sister's sin is somehow worse than your sin. We got, we're so good at pointing the finger at other people and thinking that we're all that in a bag of churros. Your sin, and you have some, and if you're not sure what it is, see the elders will tell you. (laughs) We all have sin, and it is ugly. And it is offensive to a holy God. And your sin is just as ugly and just offense, as offensive as anybody else's sin. 
Turn away from the notion that your righteousness is a result of your will rather than God's grace. Hey, next time you think about criticizing somebody else's life choices or where they end up, remember to add to that, but for the grace of God, there go I. If God's grace doesn't come upon me, I, in my sinful condition, will do the dumbest things possible. Repent of your lack of love, even if it's just for one brother or sister in Christ. Repent of your failure to recognize that a lack of love for even one of your brothers and sisters in Christ is a lack of love for God. Remember what the scripture says in 1 John 4.10. If someone says, I love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you have hatred in your heart for even one of your brothers or sisters, God is saying to you in his word, you better check your love for me. Listen, God prefers imperfect and imprecise service from a heart of love for him and for others over well-polished service that comes from loveless tradition. Love is the mark of a true church. Love for God and love for others. Labor is never a suitable substitute for love. The church at Ephesus was from the outside a great looking church. They were doing all of the right things, it seems. They were busy, they were preaching, they held good theology. But deep inside was a deadly problem. So Jesus says, you better remember. And once you remember, you better repent. And that brings us to the third, and that's return. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Jesus told the church, you go back and do those things that you used to do, those things you did from the right heart attitude. Do those things before, that you did before you became a bunch of loveless Christians. It didn't matter if they were able to continue the same programs that they were now having. It didn't matter if they could have the same number of activities. It didn't matter if they could have all of the bells and whistles that they currently had. What was better, what was more important is that whatever they did, they did out of a love for God and a love for others. Better to do a few things out of love than many things without it. Better to have people humbly serve God from a sincere heart than have a bustling church full of friendly people who really don't love Christ. Return to reading your Bible so you can know Christ. 
It's not important that you read your Bible to finish a schedule. It's much more important to read your Bible to know Christ. It's great if you want to read your Bible through every year or every six months or whatever timeline. That's a wonderful goal. But if your purpose is to finish reading the Bible in a period of time and not to know Christ, there's no use. It wouldn't matter if you could read your Bible through every month. If you didn't do it to know Christ, there's no point. Return to times of prayer where you would speak to God from the depths of your soul. Not just throw up little, God, get me out of this trouble or let me have a good day or make somebody well. Return to depending upon God as if you could do nothing without his help. By the way, you can do nothing without his help. You can breathe because God allows you to do so. Return to loving God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Robert Faulkner tells the story of a time he was sharing Christ with destitute people in a certain city and He was reading to them from Luke chapter 7 a story of the woman who came and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. While he was explaining the story, he heard a little girl sobbing loudly. After the message was over, the young, thin, emaciated girl, been disfigured by smallpox, came to him and asked him, some questions, and he tried to encourage the girl. And he, he said, is he coming back? The, the man you were talking about, I heard he's coming back. And he said, oh, yes. It'll be soon. She began to cry. She said, sir, can't he wait a little while? You see, my hair isn't yet long enough to wipe his feet. Do you remember when you loved Jesus like that? That's what he's telling the church at Ephesus. You're to love me like that. Go back. Love him like that again. Love for God and love for others is necessary for a church to survive. Hence the warning in the end of verse 5. Or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I want you to see how serious it is for church to love God and to love others. It didn't matter how much they had going for it. It didn't matter how busy they were. It didn't matter how pure their theology was. It didn't matter how they defended the faith. It didn't even matter how much they shared the gospel. He said, if you don't love, I'm going to put your light out. 
If you don't go back and make me the primary focus of your love, you're no longer my church. If they didn't repent, Jesus said, I'm going to snuff out your light. I'm going to extinguish what is left of the flame and your existence as a church. God will not allow his people to play church without a genuine love for one another, for him. This world needs the testimony of genuine Christians and real churches. We are filled up with churches that aren't doing what God wants them to do and loving him and loving others. The world will know us by our love. Ephesus was an otherwise good church filled with good people who knew the truth. The problem was they abandoned their first love. And their love for God and their love for others ceased to be the preeminent drive of their lives. He ends this letter in verse 7 with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a message to all of us. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat in the, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a warning for all Christians, all churches, and God's promises. If you will do what I told you to do, and you make me the first love of your life again, that is a sign that you're a believer. You are an overcomer. And you're going to spend eternity rejoicing with God, eating of the tree of life, paradise. This is what Christians do. No church body is perfect. The church is imperfect for very obvious reason. It's made up of people. And we're all imperfect. But the church can and must be made up of people who love God with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, and all their strength, and who love others as themselves. Love for God and love for others is necessary for any church to survive. Without it, we're no longer a church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you loved us enough to send your Son to die in our place. Father, we confess that we sometimes can get so busy, in fact, oftentimes, where we're not thinking about why we do what we do. But Father, we pray that if we have in any way, individually or corporately, left our first love, that you would make that clear to each and every one of us, that we would return, we would remember and repent and return, so that, Father, our light would continue to shine brightly. Father, we want to be known as a church that knows you and loves you and a church that loves other people. We want the world to know that we belong to you. Father, may we never confuse our busyness 
for love. But may our motive be our heart for you and our heart for others. Father, you know better than anyone the the rifts that exist within this body, the relationships that are ungodly, the anger, bitterness, even hatred that exists in the hearts of some for brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that you and your grace and mercy would bring those people to repentance, to turn away from their pride, turn away from their sinful anger, and return to you in love. And let the love of God that is spread upon our hearts flow to one another, that you might be glorified, that you might be exalted, and that the world may know that we belong to you. Father, help us to love you like you deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.